Immigration is a heated and deadlocked policy issue. A recent Gallup poll revealed that Americans are divided on whether immigration levels should increase, decrease, or stay the same, with roughly a third falling into each category. Immigration is also an issue that has profoundly personal impacts. So how are policymakers taking into account the unique factors surrounding this issue? Welcome to Tiger Prince. I'm your host, Hope Perry. Today on the show, a recent Princeton grad who wrote his thesis using a unique approach to immigration policy. I also got to chat with his advisor, Julian Zelizer, a renowned political historian. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself and something interesting you did this summer? Sure. My name's Abraham Wasserstein. I'm from Boca Raton, Florida. And something about the summer that's been interesting, I'll be doing a Fulbright student researcher grant in Costa Rica. So I actually just got back from Costa Rica preparing some stuff, and I'm really looking forward to it. And it's actually a continuation of my thesis work, which is something that, you know, one of the many things I'm really grateful for from this thesis project. Immigration policy is a complicated topic, so I was curious what exactly Abe researched for his thesis. Here's what he said. You know, I think the at the heart of it, the the question and the problem I was looking at is, you know, the United States is a nation of immigrants, but our policies are deeply disconnected from that reality that we we deem to be true. And I was trying to look at it from a particular lens of saying that we have these policies that have been created since 1965, which is kind of a, in the literature, the dawn of modern day immigration policy that has over time created the system that has criminalized immigration, that has created the system where, where people who have been traditionally coming for what I was looking at workflows uh, for economic immigration were instantly, you know, pretty much with one policy with the Immigration Nationality Act of 1965, this flow that was so, so normal, so typical for the United States became illegal. And over time, I track how different policies created this infrastructure problems inherited in the kind of creation of a system. And yeah, so that was the, the central issue and ta- tracing those, those historical processes and then thinking creatively about, you know, how can we look at the local community that in my particular example is Iowa and saying, well, in Iowa, there's labor shortages in so many different industries. Uh, for example, meat packing and meat processing. And how can we create policies that are able to empower the local community to address its, its labor gaps, but it's also its demographic challenges challenges in a way that empowers the community, but also treats immigrants fairly and in the way that they should be treated, because really, this nation is a nation of immigrants. Before we got into the specifics of Abe's community-based policy idea, I asked him to walk me through the recent history of immigration policy in America. It was interesting. Before 1965, there was something called the Bracero Program. And under the Bracero Program, it was pretty much the seasonal migration pattern where people predominantly from Mexico were able to come into the United States for seasonal work and then come back across. And with the Immigration Nationality Act of 1965, the dynamic really, really changed. The Bracero Program ended in 64, and you had a shift in priorities uh, with uh, within the United States on what immigration policy would prioritize. Well, what did that mean? At the end of the day, there was still this labor need and this demand. So the flow continued, the same exact flow. But the caveat here was now it was undocumented immigration. So that's kind of a big turning point here. And as you as we progress down in time, so let's fast forward to 1986 with the Reagan bill. So here there was a case where it was saying, you know, essentially there were two decades of inaction from legislators in, in creating policies that would say the reality is that these flows are continuing because that's kind of how a globalized economy works. But instead, this policy really just tried to create what people call the Reagan amnesty or there are other terms for it, but essentially to create a blank slate 
and start again with high enforcement. So the priority slowly became enforcement rather than creating mechanisms that were beneficial for all parties in reality. And this is something that I think we continue to see today, where the conversation on immigration is highly criminalized and really focused on enforcement. You might have heard Abe mention something earlier about Iowa. He knows it may appear to be an odd choice, since immigration debate often seems to be focused on the U.S.-Mexico border. But Abe did a case study on migration in Iowa during his research, and listening to him explain it, it started to make sense. Iowa could actually provide a productive template for how immigration policies might play out in other areas of the country we might not typically consider to be immigration magnets. Instead of looking at the realities that there are labor shortages throughout the country, and the reason I chose Iowa is because it's an example of you say, wait, immigration in Iowa? And the reality is that in cities like Denison, there's 50% of the population is Hispanic, or you have cities like Marshalltown that are 33% Latino. And I think these figures are important because it shows that these flows are happening. And actually in Iowa, happened in the 1990s. And a lot of that immigration was undocumented. But, you know, I spoke with almost a dozen different mayors and different people in public service on the local level and across the political spectrum from more liberal cities to deep red cities, conservative cities. The reality was this, that they said, we need people, we need immigration. And for a lot of some of those cities that were more on the conservative side, it was a little bit more tricky about how to create a, a policy that would both not create what they deemed as demographic shifts that would be too drastic for the community, but still be able to address the economic needs that they have in order to grow. But the reality was that all the people I interviewed were interested in creating local immigration policies that that could help their cities grow in a way that could really help the city grow, both both in terms of economic metrics, but also in terms of cultural metrics and just having thriving cities. And in a state like Iowa, where there's demographic change, where you know, there's an aging demographic, where there's a shrinking demographic in population. So it's really important. I thought Abe's argument about the importance of immigration and the labor market was timely, since we've been hearing a lot about the labor shortage as a result of the pandemic. But I was still curious why Abe decided to go with a community approach to immigration, since it's not something I've heard much about. How does a community approach to immigration work, and why is it more appealing than, say, top-down immigration reform? Top-down immigration reform, our modern-day era has proven, is not working in the United States. It's been tried. 2013, Ginga Bay Bill. It failed. And this was kind of the bill that everyone was saying would be able to address those underlying issues and reform our our immigration policy, create a, a new dawn of modern day immigration policy after 1965. The reality is it didn't work. And I think what my thesis is saying is we need a bottom up approach. We need to start from the local community. We need to get the input from those people. And for the community-based visa program, really the heart of that, it's not just that the mayor creates it or the county commissioners make it. No, it's that the community makes it. This brought me back to a Model Congress event I attended in high school, where I happened to be in the room during the debate of an immigration bill. I felt like if I heard one more person use the phrase comprehensive immigration reform, I would simply explode, because no matter how many times someone got up and made a speech in favor of it, the bill didn't move and no consensus or conversation was able to be made. Abe's proposal of community-based visas intrigued me as a possible alternative to what seems to be a pretty circular public debate. I wanted him to explain more about how the community-based visa could be more broadly appealing and how his case study of Iowa backed that up. 
There are different terms for similar proposals, uh, place-based visas, uh, local visas. But for me, it was really about creating a community-based visa to get different stakeholders, let it be the local chamber of commerce, local citizens, the existing immigrant community, if that exists in that particular community, the, re- the religious community, the nonprofit community, everyone coming together and being able to think creatively and saying, what does our community need? And how can we create policies and a proposal that we could then move to the state level and then to the federal level to say, this is what our community says that we're able to do. And this is what we need. And I think that's the heart of it, right? Because we could talk about economics all day and we could talk about labor shortages all day, but at the heart of it, integration is the central element that proves for immigration to be successful. You know, you could have a bunch of people come in to address these labor gaps at you know, a meatpacking plant, but the reality is if they're not integrated into the community, it doesn't work. There's hostility over time. And you know, I, I go into different figures about when those hostilities reach peaks. The, the important thing is that if you have the community input here and the community voice, you're able to create integration plans around that. And there are su- such amazing ones in Iowa where there was you know, a mayor who was speaking with me about how local citizens in the population would say, yeah, you know, I, why don't we make a, you know, a matching program where, you know, like a host program where we'll teach people, the, the new immigrant population that comes, will be able to get to know Iowa and we'll be able to help them through it. You know, the ins and outs of living in Iowa, you know, when you have to shovel the snow, and I'm from Florida, so, you know, this is really new to me, but, you know, when we have to shovel the snow or when we have to, the way to go to the grocery store and, you know, how to really create a, a thriving life and, you know, the different cultural events that happen. That was something beautiful too. And these really small towns, you'd have these cultural celebrations. And that was something that like, I was like, wow, this is beautiful. But the reality is that's, that's the heart of it. That's the integration aspect that is so much more important because if you only focus on that labor gap and labor issue aspect, it won't be successful. There'll be hostility. There won't be a community. Uh, and that's for me why I was really proposing and pushing for that community-based visa. I thought Abe's focus on creating community partnerships was unique and seemed to better reflect the personal nature of immigration. At its core, immigration is about people moving from one country to another, but that human aspect of it often seems to get swallowed up by politics. Hearing about how communities in Iowa embraced the immigrant populations and the way that immigrant communities were also able to celebrate their heritage honestly made me feel a little bit more optimistic about the future direction of immigration policy. I asked Abe to tell me about some of the challenges he faced during his research. Sure. I don't know if you have, if this will have video, but the reality, I want to show this, that I only had X amount of pages. And I think that was the biggest challenge. The experience of saying that time is finite and space is finite was really, really challenging because for me, I said, you know, I would love to speak with everyone and get every single perspective and, you know, hear the different angles uh, and include them in the thesis. And I think for me, something that was really, really tough was saying, there's so much incredible information that I learned from the people, from the people on the ground experiencing things, from the local policy leaders who are thinking about their communities and want things to be better. And I had to distill that information. I think that was the most challenging part, but it was also the most rewarding because I would really have to think about and reflect on, you know, the different pieces of information and the different conversations I had. And I think in that process, I really, I realized, you know, what the heart of policy is, because sometimes we could, especially in academia, we can kind of think in this, you know, this different headspace. But I think a lot of those interviews, the the qualitative component, you know, brought me down, brought me down to the local level. And I think that's the beauty, even in COVID. Yeah, I wasn't in Iowa, but I felt like I was on the ground a lot of times in those interviews. And that was beautiful. And it's because when you speak with those local leaders, that's the, that's the heart 
of policy where people are facing issues and saying, I love my community and I want to make it better. And when it comes with that personal touch in policy, there's just something so magical about that. And I think that's what my thesis really helped me discover that, you know, when you're making policy, uh, even if we're at the levels of academia or if we're on the federal level looking at the big picture, that local input, that's really the magic. And I think that's what makes successful policy, having those local inputs from diverse stakeholders who are thinking about the issue differently and bringing in those voices. And that was the most rewarding part of my thesis, but also the most challenging to have to distill. Abe was my third interview for this series, and it got me thinking even more deeply about the process of thesis writing. I'll eventually need to write one, so I decided to talk to Abe's advisor, Julian Zelizer, to see if he could offer any tips on how to approach it, or what challenges might arise. Once you find an issue that you're passionate about, you have to narrow it, you have to shape it, and you have to define it in a way where even though you don't know how the year will unfold, you have a pretty good sense there's a body of material and it's shaped or structured in a way that come seven, eight months from when you start, you can finish this thing and you can do it in a way that isn't uh, thin, that the material is there to kind of take a deep dive into a subject. So it's both kind of finding what the passion is, uh, but then as an advisor, and this is hard, but really important, guiding them toward the practicality of what they're doing. And I think students who early on can get both usually have the best kind of outcome. I'd say one other thing which is important, and this was something with someone like Abe that wasn't really a problem. It's as things unfold, you have to be flexible and improvisational and the research will not go the way you expect. There will be uh, obstacles along the way. This was the only year a pandemic was kind of an added challenge, not just being apart, but I didn't know where Abe and he didn't know where would he be able to do research? What would he be able to even get uh, under these conditions? And uh, this was an extreme example of that. And all students are to be commended who got through this and produced something, but it's a perpetual challenge. And I think you have to have a mindset where you will hit roadblocks and you know that, and it doesn't become overwhelming and frustrating to you. And you kind of go around it and you find the path forward. I think that's really an important part of the good thesis writing. Funnily enough, when I asked Abe about the importance of an advisor during the thesis writing process, he said almost the same thing. You know, I, I think for me, you know, I'll speak personally about Professor Zelizer a little bit, but also bring it a, a little bit more generalized. It's so important to have a coach on your side, you know, that, that person who will be there for you through thick and thin. And for me, Professor Zelizer was, you know, I, I met Professor Zelizer the fall semester of my first year. I took a, his history class and then he went on a sabbatical and we kept in touch and we were always communicating. And, you know, it was really nice for me to have started my Princeton experience creating kind of this really amazing, you know, uh, connection with the professor and then being able to circle back. And as a senior, being able to work on my thesis uh, with Professor Zellers advising me, it, it was really, really a special thing to have that coach and someone who could say, here's your idea you have. And I'm someone who had a lot of ideas going on. You know, if there was no page limit, I think my thesis would have, you know, been 500 pages. And Professor Zellizer is kind of a, this force that was able to center me sometimes. And, you know, I think that's what a thesis advisor does. You know, a lot of the times when we're doing research, we're looking at the tree and we're so focused on that tree. And I think what thesis advisor are able to do is help us to zoom out and look at the forest and then maybe look at a different tree and then zoom out again and look at a different tree and really being able to 
to have research that will be meaningful for us, but also help guide us, right? Uh, and I think that's something really important because all, all the thesis advisors have a wealth of experience and they were in the same shoes that we were in. And I think it's really important that, you know, SPIE advisors, is something I realized are really good at that. They're really good at saying, I remember when I was in your shoes. And not only do I remember that, but since this is a SPIA paper and we have that policy proposal and a policy perspective as well, how can we make this an academic project that also has real world implications? And that's kind of one of the, the beautiful things about being in SPIA. And I think the thesis is the capstone to that, that brings it all together. So for me, the thesis advisor and especially Professor Zelizer was that coach who was always on the sideline cheering me on, who was always giving me you know directions for the next play. But it was really important and a connection that I know I'm going to cherish for a long time. Abe will be working as a Fulbright student researcher in Costa Rica doing comparative analysis of the immigration systems in the United States and Costa Rica. Abe has a personal connection to Costa Rica since his grandparents eventually moved there after a brief time in Cuba and the United States after they fled the Holocaust. To read more, check out Abe's policy profile on our Instagram, at Princeton Spia. That's at Princeton S-P-I-A. Thanks for joining me, Abe. Sure. Thanks for joining my exploration into Abe's research. I hope you learned something new today. You've been listening to Tiger Prince, a podcast produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. This show was edited by me, Hope Perry, and produced by me with support from Rose Huber. Special thanks to other School of Public and International Affairs interns, Jenna Thompson, Reese Williams, and Amon Kosru. The content you've just heard does not reflect the views of Princeton University or the School of Public and International Affairs. Be sure to check out our other podcasts at spia.princeton.edu slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and see you next time.